We've got this. Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo. Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo. We've got this. Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo. We've got this. Find an away. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode three of the Cervical Wellness Podcast. Today, I am very excited to offer you the audio of a webinar that I taught called the History of Modern Gynecology webinar, or rather a little bit of History of Modern Gynecology because um, there's no way that I'd be able to put the breadth of the History of Modern Gynecology in a webinar. But I wanted to bring it to the podcast because one of the main goals of this podcast is to continue to spread the message of the revolution that I see happening within the realm of women's health, women's reproductive health and wellness, and really the burgeoning consciousness that I see uh, blooming within women around the world. So, you know, I have been speaking to women from all corners of this planet for over six years, I say in the webinar, I mean, I share in the webinar how, um, you know, I've been doing this like professionally as a business for over five years now. But but even before I decided to, you know, quit my job and do this full time, I was having conversations with women all over the like all over the world, Europe, Australia, um, African nations, you know, Asian countries, these places about their experiences in gynecology, obstetrics and gynecology, and their deep desire and knowing to have it go a different way for them. So, you know, my background is in history. I have my bachelor's in history. I am a deep lover of history. And um, in fact, if I didn't get into the health and wellness field, I actually really wanted to become a either professor of history or (laughs) be featured on the History Channel. Um, That was like a teenager goal of mine. But anyway, I digress. This webinar was my gift to the cervical wellness community to show and reveal my deep why for this work. Why am I so passionate about revealing and showing and guiding a new way to approach cervical health and pelvic well-being to the women of the world? Because the way that we have been told it's the, is the only way is steeped in darkness and horror and Oh, things that make me feel very angry and frustrated and appalled and righteous. So there is a little bit of a content warning for this episode. Um, You know, some of the things that I share in the webinar audio is difficult to hear. Um, There is a PowerPoint that goes along with this webinar that is available as a video, like you can watch this webinar as a video. I will link um, that in the show notes if you'd like to, you know, watch the video that goes along with it because I did take a lot of 
time to gather imagery and, you know, create slides and whatnot. But I feel that just the audio of this webinar really paints a very clear picture and tells a very real story of the foundation of this branch of medicine that all women that I know have had some sort of thing with. I don't want to say issue, but you know, thing. (laughs) Some of us have had issues, many of us have had issues, but there's always been this kind of like, ooh, like, why do I feel this way when I go into the gynecologist's office? And In today's episode, the audio of A Little Bit of History of Modern Gynecology reveals why that might be so. So this is a longer episode because it was a webinar and I do go through like an introduction of me and I do a little bit of a grounding before I dive into the webinar content itself. Um... So just wanted to give you a heads up about that. And the final thing I want to give a heads up about is I did have to do some editing towards the end because in the middle of teaching, there was an earthquake. I live in California and it was like the first real earthquake that I have felt in probably like 10 years. And it was right at this like pinnacle moment of me really declaring and claiming us to reclaim our pelvic sovereignty for ourselves and what we can do, um, you know, and then the earth started to shake. So I did my best in editing out a good five minutes of me just kind of in shock. There was actually two, there was the main earthquake and then there was um, an aftershock that like rolled through my house. Um, And I did do my best to edit out like the after effects of that because there was a few moments where I, you know, was like coming back to my body after being in the middle of an earthquake while teaching to um, hundreds of people in this webinar. So if you hear me mention the earthquake, that is what that's about. And in the video recording of this, there is more Q&A at the end if you're curious to hear some of the questions that some of the participants asked. But with this recording, it is just the webinar portion. And I hope that you enjoy it in the best way that you can. And if you find this interesting and want to know more in terms of the images or the visuals that I share, go to the link in the show notes and check out the video recording of the webinar. All right, friends, this is a long intro, so let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to a little bit of history of modern gynecology presented by me, Danelle of cervical wellness. And I'm going to go into what this image is here at a later moment. So if you don't know who I am, I am Danelle Barbara Randall, and I'm a women's integrative health coach and like a self-dubbed cervical healing guide. My background comes from having had seven years of HPV and cervical dysplasia that I healed on my own much to the chagrin of my medical providers, the nurse practitioner that I saw for many years, the OBGYNs that I saw, um, they didn't believe that I could do this. And I, in my own way, gave them the middle finger. (laughs) 
So now I have made it my purpose in life to actually be a voice for cervix. Um, I do say instead of the cervix, I do say cervix because I believe that this place in our body of our deep pelvis is much more than just a body part. It's actually a place where we uh, with female bodies can anchor into for all sorts of things in our life, whether that is grounding, inner stability, inner knowing, it's like our own inner oracle. It's a place that reveals to us unwellness or imbalance in the body. And so cervical wellness is the platform in which I teach and guide this. And I have been doing this for um, unofficially a little over seven years. Um, yet this October, next month, it will be, I will be officially five years in business when I actually like quit my job and went full time into this work. Um, but my passion is really to share and to bring hope and inspiration and knowledge. So why am I teaching this webinar? Hold on, my little face here is annoying me. Okay. So from my perspective, in order to understand our modern day experiences and to integrate our experiences in our body, it's imperative for us to understand how this all started. And I have a background in history. I got my bachelor's in history. I think history is one of the most important subjects that we can learn, not just history from one source, but really looking at it from multiple angles, from multiple perspectives to have a better understanding of what is happening now. Because once we have the understanding of what's happening now, we can then with clarity and precision, make a, like a projection of where we can go instead of being at the whim of the current that is present. So I like to say it's like by learning history, we are facing the beast in the eyes. And this is um, this history is also a fuel for us to continue on this revolutionary path of reclaiming our pelvic well-being, our female bodies for ourselves. And it can offer us the wherewithal to continue forward even when it is difficult. So I really want to name that I don't blame modern day doctors. I don't think that any of them are like tr intentionally trying to do harm. It's the system beneath them that they are resting upon that is what's harmful. So I have compassion for gynecologists, OBGYNs, um, you know, nurse practitioners, um, gynecological nurses, these sorts of practitioners, because they do just want to help. And I think it's also very important that they understand what they are perpetuating with certain protocols, with certain language, with certain ideas and beliefs that lead to us women feeling disempowered, disenfranchised, and psycho-emotionally and physically harmed. 
So I also need to name that this doesn't include all the history. There is so much, like I could literally teach probably like a 40 hour course on this because each thing that I have, I'm offering here, each little tidbit is like a thread that you can just like follow and it just unwinds into something that is just like, <laughs> like, a, like it's the beast. It's a beast. Okay. Um, but if you want to know more, if there's something that I present that you're like, ooh, this is interesting, I invite you to and encourage you to do more research, to read books, to look up, you know, other historians, to look up other stories, and then we can, you know, have a broader understanding. So our trajectory today. This is the telling of the story of fragmentation of women and the loss of self-autonomy in medicine and healthcare. So I'm gonna tell you how it was before all this, all this started. I'm gonna tell you what happened. I'm gonna tell you about the birth of the fathers of women's health, the field of women's health. I'm gonna tell you what it became examples of how it shifted and morphed and became into what it is now. And then I'm going to offer some ideas on where we can go from here. So before we dive in, I think it's really important that we um, take a few breaths into our pelvises, into our wombs, and into our hearts. Because what I'm going to share with you I'm just going to name it, can be triggering. I cried yesterday, I cried today about this information. So just know right now that you can stop anytime, you can back out anytime, um, you can step away, please take care of yourself. <sighs> but for now, let's just go ahead and place one hand on our heart and one hand over our womb, or if you've had a hysterectomy, I'll place over your pelvis. And I just invite us to just take some breaths here. And as we breathe, just like send that breath down into the depths of our pelvis. And release. And as you breathe here, just really feel your body, feel your feet on the ground. Feel your seat, feel the space around you. and know that you are safe here now. And whatever feelings or emotions or thoughts or sensations arise throughout the duration of this story, that it's okay. And that through receiving this information, we are writing a new way. Mm. 
Okay. Okay. So here we go. So how it was. Part one. So in most of even like pre-ancient history, Neolithic history, through majority of the ancient civilizations, not so much the Western ancient civilizations like Rome and Greece, which were relatively misogynistic civilizations, uh, women's bodies and like woman um, was re were revered and respected. And this is one of the oldest rock art forms. I'm forgetting exactly where it's from, but clearly it depicts an individual with a womb and or with a uterus and like this just this iconography of uh, the female body as being a power place can be found all over the world these are the shilana gigs um, which are found all throughout great britain and during most of human history women women's women's women knew of practices and of herbs on how to help themselves so chai yok is actually vaginal steaming and that's from korea vaginal smoking with herbs was very popular in africa and micronesia there was a jade egg and like the taoist practices in ancient china abdominal massage and womb wrapping which is called the faha in central and south america uh, Queen's Aunt, Queen Anne's Lace or Wild Carrot was a popular herb in Northern Europe and nettles in North America. And this is this is just a very short list of um, practices and herbs. I mean, this this is like nothing compared to what the, what is really out there in terms of what women did to take care of their female anatomy. And so, you know, I invite you to put in the chat other traditional women's health support practices that you know of, you know, like maybe you do know of other indigenous practices or other like ancient European practices. Um, please let us share this information. But the reality is, is that there was a very rich history of women knowing how to take care of their bodies, of like they're not needing to be an outside source for them to take care of their themselves. Women's health was also just managed by women. Um, all imagery that you see of childbirth pre-Renaissance was of the birthing woman seated on a chair and the midwife lower than her to catch the baby and you know other women around them to put you know to brace and have um like physical support with and maybe just maybe there was like the father who was like behind her but always the like the the birthing mother was always most comfortable and the, like the midwives would support them from down below you know women provided one another with herbs and manual support for pelvic concerns and as i mentioned like in rome ancient rome and greece which were not very kind to women 
um, you know, most female health concerns were treated by other women. It was the midwives, the grandmothers, the herbalists, and the women of the community that gathered around them in need of health and support. And I know this image is blurry. I couldn't find um, a more clear one, but this is just um, an image of an ancient Egyptian relief, which like here's, you know, it's all the women, like the men are over here, like watching, like, whoa, okay. I have no idea what's happening here. So we're just gonna leave it here. <sighs> so these are just some more images. Um, I love that this is an image of a funeral urn, which has this, the um, a scene of the ancient of Peruvian labor scene. It's like a funeral urn with life being portrayed. And this is from like the medieval ages. Like clearly it's all women tending women. So what happened? Now, I just want to name that this is all of my discerning um, with like historical research and reading books and whatnot. But, you know, I don't know exactly what happened because I didn't live back then. But this is what I have gleaned through my historical research, through reading different um you know, primary sources, secondary sources, other historian historians research. And like, this is like my understanding of how, you know, this disintegrated and this kind of like perverted form of women's health support was established. So a combination of several occurrences actually happened between that between the years 1500 and 1800, which was the like witch hunts of Europe, the eras of the Renaissance through the Industrial Revolution, and then the Europeans' global colonization of basically the rest of the world um, and influencing the rest of the world with their Renaissance and Industrial Revolution beliefs and processes and uh, worldviews. So, you know, the European witch hunts from 1500 to 1700 ha is dubbed by many historians as like the genocide of women. So officially written down, they have records of around 50,000 women and girls who were killed at that time, as well as some men, as well as, um, you know, other members of society, but officially, officially 50,000 women were documented as being either hanged or um, burned or drowned or just tortured to death. However, there is more information coming up. There's been some graves been found. There's been other historians doing research around this that they are estimating actually around 4 million women and girls were killed because there were um, undocumented mobs that would come through towns, particularly in Scotland, particularly in like the Germanic area and literally kill every single woman or girl in the town. So a theory as to why this happened, like there are many different theories. However, 
what I have read um, through multiple sources is that this was actually spurred by the church, the Vatican's desire to control reproduction. Because prior to these witch hunts, Europe as a continent experienced the Black Plague or Black Death, it was called, and major famines that wiped out a large portion of Europe's population. So what the witch hunts were actually doing was removing the women who were supporting women in their reproductive birth and gynecological support so that they can then control the health and like the population creation of Europe. So between the Great Famine of 1315 to 1317 and the Black Plague, it is estimated, um, I actually saw upwards of 60% of population, um, but I kind of chose, it was like 30 to 60%. So I chose this like middle percentage of the population were killed. So, you know, after this happened, Europe was really in a like a major trauma response. And, <clears throat> you know, there's also um, theories that there was an ergot uh, fungus that got into a lot of the wheat um, of old Europe, so leading to kind of this uh, psychedelic paranoia that happened. Who really knows? But what happened, <laughs> what this all led to was in 1486, the Malefus Maleficarum, or called the Hammer of Witches, was. Um, printed, which was the manual to spot out witches to lead them to death. And so there was kind of this like religious zeal that came about among the men. And it's like suddenly um, this idea that like women were consorts with Satan just emerged. I'm sure there's more detail. I know there's a lot of historians out there who look at the detail, but this webinar isn't necessarily about the detail. But what I do want to tell you is that this Hammer of Witches or the Maleficus Maleficarum was the manual that led to the deaths of the healers, the wise women, the herbalists, the midwives, the women in Europe who held all this knowledge, who held all of um, the support, like the backbone of support for women's health in Europe specifically. So after the burning of the women or the killing of the women, we then enter into this age of the Renaissance, which I know when I was in high school and I learned about the Renaissance, I learned about it as being like this like amazing thing that happened to Western culture. However, with this new lens, I now see that it's like, oh, it's actually, it was like the killing off of the women's wisdom and the like advancement and patronage of male wisdom or of man's wisdom. So this is when like 
all of like these like scientists and inventors and philosophers, they all started to be very deeply interested in anatomy and physiology and like healthcare and how, how does the human, how does humanity work and how can I innovate upon what is already here? And the Renaissance was really where the birth of this, of the ideology of the approach to women's reproductive health of modern day was born. So here, this is an image of like a, of a female body being studied by a group of geez, like a hundred men, um, like just kind of with no respect whatsoever because they were just like, what are these pieces that make this person so different than me? So for the last 600 years since the Renaissance, uh, all anatomical illustrations have been done by men, uh, starting from this era. And so these are actually some illustrations done by Leonardo da Vinci. And when I first saw this one on the left, I was like, wow. So the female vulva is portrayed as like a gaping hole. Okay, that's nice. Um, and like then seeing like the, like, the uterus here, that looks very kind of demonic to me. I'm like, that is scary looking. Like that is not how the uterus looks in the body from my knowledge and from what like, you know, anatomy portrays today. But this is, this was the start. This was the start of how the female body was seen in this advancement of medicine. <clears throat> so it is well documented that during this era, um, women were just basically seen as underdeveloped men and quite literally just child receptacles. They were so focused on procreation and birth. And I don't think they quite possibly knew that it was because they were trying to like repopulate Europe. Um, but what's interesting is that they were so focused on the uterus and it being a place for new life to be born. And yet, on the other hand, there was this deeply staunchly like, like disgust of the female anatomy. And as I write here, like some anatomists actually left out reproductive anatomy entirely because they felt like so ashamed of revealing it or as you know they like would begin their documentation with an apology because like oh I'm sorry you have to see this um but these anatomists they ascribed the normality normality only to male bodies it's like a male body is what's normal a female body this is kind of perverse and wrong and just as a baby maker, only a womb, only a vessel. This is what many anatom anatomical historians have recorded is that the idea was that the female body was only a womb, only a vessel, and that the female form was seen as profane and pathological in origin. So it's just like wrong. It's just wrong. It's a pathology. Like having a female body is pathological. And I put this um, image here because it's curious to me how like the, the male body is shown in like all these other, you know, pieces, but it's like the female body is just shown like 
just the womb, maybe the kidneys too. Um, but this is just a, an indicator of this only a womb, only a vessel. <clears throat> so sin and flesh were held in close association uh, with the naked woman and with the female anatomy. And this image I just think is so telling. It's like, hey, like, let's look at the like male genitalia, but like, oh, if you got female genitalia, you got to be ashamed of it. So you got to hide it. And it's shameful because Eve gave Adam the apple and listened to the serpent. Okay. That is like what everything is founded upon, which is wild um, that we are shameful. We've created shame and we are just a womb. We are just a vessel to create life. So in this 1559 edition of a, um, an, an anatomy book, which is called the Compendioso Totius Anatomiae Delian, Delin, Delinetio. <laughs> I am not an Italian speaker. Um, you would see the, the dissected female torso and he actually cut a neat little triangle uh, of the vagina and vulva because it's shameful. Okay. So reminder, this is the foundation of Western medicine. Okay. So we can't even look at it. We can't even look at it, friends. You can't even look at it. Like this is, um, from, I believe the late 1700s, early 1800s, um, they had these like anatomical models that they created, but, oh no, we can't see the vulva. We can't check out like the vaginal opening or anything. It's shameful. We got to cover it. We got to cover it. Um, also there's, I didn't have, I don't have this image in this, in this slideshow, but there's also another one of these dolls that was widely used that literally you couldn't open anything else up of the body just you open up the, the lower torso and there's a baby inside, which is fine, like, which is beautiful because women's bodies give birth. Um, but the, the part of the story is that women's bodies were only seen as a vessel for children and nothing else that it was either, it's a shame to look at or you have to do the job of giving birth. <clears throat> So coming more towards the 1700s into the early 1800s, this is when we really start to see the like parting of the female body. And when I say parting, I mean like just like a deeper segmentation of like, like the only thing that matters is the womb because uh, we can control birth. And so this is the, an era in the 1700s where there was another push into the 1800s to oust all of the remaining midwives or the underground midwives. And the female, I mean, the male, the like the masculine midwives da, 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 would come and save the day. And this is when the fathers of obstetrics and gynecology started to emerge. So I included this, um, these images because um, 
there was a history book that had the men saying that you don't even see the whole body in these drawings anymore. Like, it's just like, you see what on this left, she's just kind of like her legs cut off like, like a ham or something. And you just see this kind of like gaping hole with the baby inside. And yes, it is important to see what the like uterus looks like. And yes, it's important to see what uh, like a fetus or a growing fetus inside the uterus looks like. But what I'm trying to bring home here is that no other part of the female body was considered to be important. So even here with the uterus, like you can't see the tubes, you can't see the ovaries. It's just only a womb, only a vessel. That is what anatomical historians had revealed to me is that we are only seen as a vessel to create babies. And all, the whole point of this, of repopulation of Europe was purely capitalistic in nature. They needed more workers. They needed people to tend to tend to the farms, the lords and the, you know, the, the kings and the, like the people in charge of all the land, they needed more people to work for them. So they hyper-focused on the female uterus. And that is all the women were good for was to pump out more workers to repopulate Europe. <sighs> so they killed <laughs> the women who maybe supported, you know, abort, um, you know, herbal abortions or supported like herbal birth control or supported women like forcing a miscarriage during this time. They got rid of them. They killed them. They defamed them. They um, <clears throat> ruined their lives through, um, you know, the method of like speaking ill about them and spreading rumors. I mean, it was like the ousting of the female midwives and the takeover of the male midwives in of itself is just purely a capitalistic endeavor, truly, at this time. So these fathers applied new devices and procedures as developed during the burgeoning industrial revolution. So here we now move from the Renaissance where there's like the age of science and reason and Descartes saying like, I think therefore I am like moving into the mind, <clears throat> um, you know, the, the evolution of anatomy and physiology and the, um, the segmentation of like the female body from the whole person itself, just looking at the womb. And then as we enter into the late 1700s into the 1800s and this like industrial revolution started to take a hold, suddenly there are all these innovations and being able to like create all these tools all these tools to use. And so this is actually one of the first stirrups that was created. This is by James Marion Sims, who I will speak more about here in a moment. But this is when like um, forceps were created to like pull babies out of the wombs and like speculums were like innovated. And friends, I found this um, obstetrics and gynecology textbook from 1880s. And these people had like dozens of different tools to pry women's bodies open to like, to like 
force things to happen within their womb. And these fathers of gynecology, inspired by the Renaissance of, you know, science and innovation, started to apply these in women's health care. <clears throat> women's health at this time became industrialized. So it wasn't just about ousting the midwives anymore. It's like, how can we like make this factory oriented? Okay. Here's this speculum to pry them open. Okay. Well, they're moving too much, so I can't do my work. Let me just strap them down in these stirrups. Like, okay, this person isn't birthing fast enough for me. Let me just stick these tongs in there and pull the baby out. So the third thing that was happening here that is very important to name is while the industrialization of women's healthcare took a hold in the United States and in Europe, the rest of the world is being colonized by these Europeans and Americans. And this essentially eradicated any and all local indigenous knowledge of women's healthcare. So like, think for a moment, like, the millions of different peoples around the world that the likes of the United States and Britain and Portugal and Germany and Belgium and Spain and France, all these people went and like killed them and enslaved them and destroyed their way of life. Like what, what knowledge of women's healthcare was lost? Like Oh God, I, this is one of the things I was crying about yesterday. Just like, oh my gosh, just like how, I mean, obviously more than that was lost, but for this purpose, for this webinar, for the work that I do, just really feeling into for the care of our bodies as women, what was lost and this happened. Any and all medicine beyond the science-based medicine of Western men was deemed primitive or quackery. Quackery meaning, oh, this is just like made up. This is just hocus pocus. This is just, you know, hullabaloo. <sighs> I get very angry when I think about this. <clears throat> So now that women and indigenous knowledge are out of the picture, after several centuries of eradication, eradication of it all, and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution set the standard of men, Western men, I should have put, know and can conquer all, a new era of obstetrics and gynecology began to take hold. And it's from this next era of development that most modern OBGYN practices were cultivated and maintained or innovated upon. So, you know, when we, like most of us, when we think about the history of modern gynecology, we actually don't, I didn't before diving into this, I didn't consider like going further back than just like the 1800s. But as you can see, there's been this like, domino effect of one thing after another after another leading to the disempowerment of women when it comes to their health care. I'm just taking a breath here. 
I'm seeing that you guys are writing in the chat, which is amazing. Part three, the birth of the fathers as they are dubbed by history of women's health. Yeah, this image, um, it's kind of strange to say, it's like one of my favorite in regards to this era because I just feel like it's so iconic. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna leave that there. So um, I have mentioned James Marion Sims once before with the development of those stirrups. And he was actually the developer of that speculum image I showed as well. But he is dubbed the original father of gynecology. However, I like to call him the father of the enslavement of women and the, con and the conquering of the female pelvis in his words. So this quote comes uh, from a document that I found regarding the history of James Marion Sims. And it says, the narrative formulas used to describe Sims' medical adventures present the classic scenarios. A hero triumphantly overcoming trial and tribulation, fighting battles in order to conquer new lands, build new spaces, and create new orders. Under all of this lies the female body, serving at once as obstacle and as object in need of discovering, conquering, and restructuring. So if you don't already know, James Marion Sims started his conquering of the female body in the 1850s, I believe. I believe this image is from, this um, image is like supposed to be around, no, sorry, 1830s. This is supposed to be around like 1838 or so. Um, but in his backyard, he would take the women who he was enslaving, the African women who he was slaving, and would experiment on them without anesthesia. And this woman right here, her name is Anarcha. She um, was chosen as one of his like favored women to experiment on because she was experiencing what is called a vaginal fistula, fistula which is where there is a tear between the, um, the urethra and the vaginal canal leading to uh, urine to come into the vaginal canal. And it's like a constant seepage of urine out of the vaginal canal. So James Marion Sims actually started his experimenting in trying to fix or treat these fistulas on Anarcha, and this is these two women are Betsy and Lucy. The Anarcha herself experienced dozens of surgeries and experimentations on her body at the hands of James Marion Sims in a very unsanitary place in his backyard. Um, I think it's it's estimated it's like 25 surgeries without anesthesia. And also uh, Betsy and Lucy and probably many other enslaved African women. Yet it came out that James Marion Sims was doing this, like somehow it got public. And while you know slavery was still happening in the United States, 
the general public had a very distasteful feeling towards what he was doing. So there was a, um, his reputation was being harmed by, harmed by people talking about these like back alley experiments he was doing. So James Marion Sims had a very big ego. So he wanted to change that. He's like, okay, well, I'm not some back alley, you know, butcher. So what did he do? He decided to build a women's hospital. <laughs> and in 1855, he established um, the first official women's hospital in New York. Now, it appeared that this women's hospital was like done in good charity, like James Marion Sims was trying to um, repair his uh, image, you know, in the medical field's perspective. Um, however, like Anarcha, like Betsy, like Lucy, many of these patients were kept indefinitely here at this hospital and underwent multiple experimental surgeries. And most of the women in this hospital were actually poor and um, destitute Irish immigrant women. So, you know, there was a wave of Irish immigrants that came in and this hospital was advertised as a refuge, like come to this hospital, we will take care of you if you are having, you know, issues like come, we will, you know, this is a place for you to rest your head. <clears throat> However, what it actually was, was a place for James Marion Sims to acquire more bodies to experiment on. And so from 1856 to 1859, there was an Irish woman named Mary Smith, and she survived 30 operations, many of which she didn't need. So these women would come to this hospital for one reason, but then James Marion Sims would just use their bodies to experiment his procedures, his new tools, his new techniques on them. However, unlike Betsy, Anarcha, and Lucy, these women did have anesthesia. <clears throat> but they were forced to have these surgeries whether they needed them or not. And the discoveries here were then made, were then utilized in his private practice where he made a lot of money. And it is in his private practice that he became rich and he like acquired accolades. This is, it is through the like research that he did at this women's hospital where he became the father of modern gynecology through the tools he developed, through the procedures that he like innovated and through the like practice that he morphed around how to approach female reproductive anatomy. It is here that James Marion Sims accolades grew. And now he is known as the original father of modern gynecology. Oh, yeah. I use this as a background for the um, marketing of this uh, this webinar, because I think it looks like a scary haunted house. And I've had so many women be like, this building looks so terrifying. And I'm like, I know, I think that we like can just feel maybe what's happened here. 
like it's different when it's a photograph you know photography is harrowing in my estimation like paintings and line drawings are harrowing but photography it just like takes the cake at least for me just me personally okay <clears throat> so the next father of really just anatomy and physiology is henry gray he wrote Gray's Anatomy, which you might know the television show, but he was the original man who like really anatomically drew out all of the human body. And my question is, is where does the freaking cervix? Okay. It says the fornix. And after actually like five minutes before starting this, I was like, okay, maybe he meant the fornix as the cervix. Because I was starting to question this. However, just like thinking back to the the other anatomical imagery that i showed like the influence of these early anatomists like okay woman as uterus and the only purpose is to make children okay there's never been any portrayal of a cervix if you recall some of those other anatomical drawings like there it's just kind of like the womb it's kind of like made like the uterus just like 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 a, a balloon with like the tip cut off where there's just like no begin there's like no end like what what is the cervix so if there's no cervix of course then you know women can't birth themselves so birth must be medicalized right okay like this is what these early anatomists curated and henry gray is not um not a part of this so William Smelly, which is one of the most influential 18th century midwives, was the first to publish the fact that the female pelvic muscles moved during childbirth because previous anatomists considered the women vessel only and they didn't think the womb did any work. They thought the, the fetus was moving and trying to get free while the womb was static. And friends, this image is from that 18th I think it's 1885 obstetrics and gynecology textbook I found. This is one of probably like 200, 300 devices that they created to birth babies, to do things to women's bodies because they believed wholeheartedly that women were just a vessel that they couldn't do anything themselves, that they had to be the birthers. They had to pull the baby out. They had to be in charge of what happens to the female anatomy. They had to do it all. <clears throat> and um, yeah, this image, oh my gosh. Uh, maybe I'll like send you the link of that anatomy, I mean that, obstetrics and gynecology textbook because it's I literally sat and stared at it for like an hour just like aghast so moving forward as we come into like the mid 19th century like the 1800s into the early 20th century was that the view was that the womb was problematic like it was a problem, like the womb was like a problem in the body. It was either a vessel to have a baby grow in, or it was a problem. 
And actually many health conditions were ascribed to a wandering womb. That is literally the diagnosis, oh, the womb is wandering. And these midwives and gynecologists believed that the uterus would actually float around in the body and like touch other organs leading to issues. And this is where the term hysteria comes from, where to were undiagnosable conditions that were then just associated with the womb. It was like, oh, you have this issue. It's just your womb. That's it's just because you have a womb. That's why you are hysterical. What else could it be, right? <laughs> So this is a hysterical woman being observed by all of the fathers of midwifery in, and gynecology. And this is a list of um, what symptoms would be given a diagnosis of hysteria. Headache, I'm just going to read them off. Headache, forgetfulness, irritability, insomnia, writing cramps, hot flashes, excessive vaginal bleeding, heaviness in the limbs, use of coarse language, severe cramping, difficulty breathing, desire for clitoral stimulation. Oh, it's just a problem with the womb. You're, hy you're hysterical. <laughs> Sorry. Hyperpromiscuity, mood swings, nausea, anxiety, drowsiness, loss of appetite, aging, back pain, swollen feet, cancer, organ failure, endometriosis, heart disease, epileptic fits, and what are now known as symptoms of depression, schizophrenia, and other psychological disorders. Remember, hysteria, the diagnosis of hysteria is just, oh, it's the womb that's the problem. And I don't know the numbers, I didn't look them up, but an unseemly amount of women were sent into mental, mental institutions for hysteria in the, late 1800, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, because, well, it's just their womb, they have a problem, let's just put them away, okay. I'm just thinking about how many stories I've received of um, women going into the gyne like, mod you know, like modern day gynecologists who say that like, you know, well, I, I've never, I'm not believed. Like I tell my symptoms to my doctor, but they don't believe me. Or I feel like they just blame me for being too promiscuous or they, um, they gaslight me in some way and I, I believe that it stems from this historical belief that it's just a problem with the womb, that we're just hysterical women. So the treatment for hysteria was to provide female hysterical paroxysms or orgasms through the stimulation of a vibrator or manual stimulation by the doctor. So vibrators were innovated, invented, I mean, by these fathers of modern gynecology to cure hysteria. And I just want to name that this era in Western society, like dubbed like the Victorian era, was very prudish, where like sexuality and like female pleasure was like 
Mm -mm, not a thing. And it is recorded that most of the women who uh, were diagnosed with hysteria, or not most, but like a large percentage of them were nuns, were um, spinsters, so like unmarried women, um, or widows. And so, you know, not only was female hysterical paroxysms uh, given as a cure, but also it is recorded that um, finding a husband and having heterosexual intercourse would heal all of these things. Okay, so modern gynecology, remember, like, or gynecology at this time, remember, stems from the religious zeal of the pre-Renaissance, okay, leading to this belief that women were consorts of Satan. Okay. So then like fast forward a couple hundred years and it's like, oh, well, you just need to have one of these men, you know, rub your clitoris <laughs> with a vi with a machine or provide manual stimulation or have heterosexual sex or find a husband. This is documented as um as a cure for hysteria, and then you would just be better, okay? So these are some of the machines that they use. Um, this is a medical massager. Um, this is like steam powered. <laughs> this is hand powered, hand cranked. So just envision like a, a woman from like 1890 who maybe never had the opportunity to really experience sexual pleasure because she was married off at 16 to maybe an older man. And he only saw her as uh, a vessel and a womb to give birth to his heirs. So she starts to feel a little angsty and maybe she starts to have coarse language and maybe she has like some anxiety. Maybe she has headaches and maybe she's, like she's writing so much that she has writing cramps. Well, she would like her husband would have her go to the doctor and he'd be like, oh, ma'am, you have hysteria. So let me lay you down and let me use this machine on you to cure you of this hysteria. That is what happened. And mind you, going back to the colonization of the rest of the world, this is what was being spread through all of European colonies. Okay, it was like it just it started in the United States and Europe, and then it would just spread around the world. So I often wonder if this area of gynecology set the stage for the seeming sexual invasion many women experience in the gynecologist's office. I can't tell you how many women I've spoken to who have said they like have felt sense of like sexual intrusion during these exams or the feelings that like their body is being crossed in some way and like the loss of autonomy of their, of our sexual organs and sexuality or the shaming of sexuality in a medical setting like is this where it came from and this is where my mind goes <clears throat> there are some other really interesting like vibrators there's this one vibrator that i saw from like the 1890s that was like a big metal machine like this and it had um 
it looked like a, a, a jackhammer. Okay. It looked like a big jackhammer. It had this like flat metal circle on it. It kind of looked like this on the end. And that's what they would then like put on the clitoris and then like through <clears throat> steam power, it would just be like, you know, like on the clitoris. And that's what they thought would cure women of all their ailments, including cancer. Because if women have cancer, it must be because they have a womb. I... So side note, I do wanna say <clears throat> that there have been good advancements and I do wanna name George, Dr. George Papanakalau who um, in the early 20th century was a medical doctor. And at this time, women were dying left and right from cervical cancer. Like it was the number one killer of women in the Western world. Okay, which is actually an issue today in developing nations um, that cervical cancer is a big issue which like, unfortunately in many developing nations are kind of like, like because of that colonization is like the, has like the actual true beneficial innovations has to like trickle to them over time. But Dr. George Papanakalau, um really, he was seeing women in, in his community die of cervical cancer. And he's like, there has to be a way to like catch cervical cancer before it develops, because what would happen is like, you know, these women, they wouldn't want to go to these gynecologists because it was scary. Like things happened in these offices. And so they would never have their anatomy checked up because they didn't know that they could do it themselves or, you know, the history of the forgetting of women being able to take care of themselves. <clears throat> and so Dr. Papanakalau developed the pap smear, a screening where they could have a smear, they could take samples from the face of the cervix, smear it on a slide, look at it under a microscope and see if the cells were starting to become abnormal. And so in 1943, he published Diagnosis of Uterine Cancer by Vaginal Smear, and it really took off like this is this took off like wildfire where in all developed nations around the world at this time they instituted the pap smear because cervical cancer was killing so many women and one thing that cervical wellness is doing um you know it just like one it's like i wish i could do more but i have actually partnered with a, an organization, an NGO in Ghana called Proffer Aid International. And like together, I'm doing the best that I can in like providing money or like education, or I sent them books, but they are, <clears throat> this NGO in Ghana, Proffer Aid International is actually bringing healthcare screenings like this to the women in rural Ghana, because in Ghana and in many African nations, cervical cancer is actually still a huge problem. Many, many women, it's like, I think it's like the third highest death rate is from cervical cancer. 
in these African nations. So that's kind of a caveat, like a side note, but I just wanted to put Dr. George Papanakalau in because regardless of how we feel about pap smears, this man really, his research really did save women's lives. <clears throat> and I think that it's important to name that. Okay, the next man, the next father of gynecology, the next medical hero is Dr. Hans Henselman. And he's also dubbed a medical hero for his innovations of the colposcopy, which if you are on a cervical healing journey, you probably know what the heck a colposcopy is. He is a German doctor doing work uh, and experimentation during the late 1920s and 1930s. And he was also very concerned about the rates of cervical cancer in women. He's the one who developed the colposcope, which is when you have a colposcopy procedure done, they like have this like camera microscope that they use to peer in. And he developed the biopsy procedure, the colposcopy biopsy. So through the 1920s and 30s, he was, you know, doing research and feeling very concerned about cervical cancer. Um, and he really wanted to like figure out how to look at the cervix and wanted to make medical developments in this area because he just like, I want to do good here. Okay. But 1930s, late 1930s, coming into the 1940s, Germany, he didn't really have any people to experiment on as he was making these innovations. So who was available to experiment on, friends? Hans Hinzelmann was contracted by the main doctor of Auschwitz, the concentration camp in Poland. And the doctors at Auschwitz gave Hans Hinzelmann free reign on all of the women in that concentration camp to practice his procedures on. And first, he wanted to get a good view of the cervix. And so, sorry, I'm just feeling a lot here. On these women, he would use forceps to pull the cervix out of the body so he could get a good view, okay? But this would cause excessive bleeding. So this is when he's like, okay, I need to go back to really innovating the colposcope, okay. Then on these women, he decided to tailor and fine tune the biopsy procedure. And he wanted to figure out how can we have less bleeding? How can we have less infection? How to stop the women from moving so much as we do these colposcopy biopsies? And so he is actually someone who also made innovations on the stirrups and actually arm straps to hold the women down as he did these experiments to figure out how to do the proper biopsy and how to actually see the cervix up close. I'm just feeling a lot at the moment just because I have endured seven colposcopy biopsies in my life and I didn't learn about this until afterwards. And upon learning this piece of history, friends, I felt disgusted. Um, 
and perhaps it just like hits home a little bit because I'm actually Polish and um, like my heritage and lineage comes from the area in which Auschwitz was. And so like, this is obviously personal to me, but you know, this is, this is just one of the tools and one of the procedures and, you know, talking about also like the stirrups and the speculum and the the forceps and all these things like these are just a few of the technologies i didn't have time to look into all the technologies um but I included this one colposcopy because of the work i do in cervical wellness and because of how many like probably through dms and emails like thousands of people I have conversed with about colposcopy specifically. So yeah, it's just mind blowing. So as I mentioned, in that era of like 1850 to 1950, there was a lot that went down. There was so much innovation, so much like movement in the field of obstetrics and gynecology. Uh, the John Hopkins School of Medicine like was developed and the first class to graduate in the field of obstetrics and gynecology occurred, I think in like the 19 teens or 1920s. And I remember reading there was like 157 men who graduated from that first class and one woman who graduated from that first class. Um, I mean, there's dozens of other fathers of gynecology from this era that I just, I don't have the time to, to put in here. Um, but I wanted to fast forward to what it became. So here's the colposcope. This is a colposcope. Okay. Whoa, I'm still feeling the colposcopy. I'm still feeling James Rain Sims. <clears throat> So let's take a look at a, at a few of the innovations of the 20th century. So some of which have been questioned and actually ceased altogether, but not without leaving a deep scar on the women who endured them. So this is what happens with gynecology is they're like, this is the way we're gonna do it. All these fathers, like this is the right way. And then they do it and then a lot of freaking harm is had and then there's maybe a public uproar and then they're like oh sorry okay like let's innovate on it let's do it this way but there's never an acknowledgement of what has happened for the years that these innovations were at hand so remember the foundational beliefs about the female bodies in this field are they are inferior to males the womb is problematic Women cannot birth properly without the help of another, and female physiological processes are shameful. First is twilight birth. And this really picked up speed in the 1950s, um, is touted as one of the best innovations of obstetrics gynecology, creating pain-free birth for all, but at what cost? It later came out that the women who experienced twilight birth, so being literally put under to then give birth um, 
you know, not being in control of their body at all, but in control of, you know, these male gynecologists, uh, these women would actually not be fully anesthetized to where they wouldn't be moving. It's well documented that they would be thrashing around and moaning as they were birthing. And um, afterwards, when they would come out of, you know, twilight, they would just be handed this baby and they would have no memory of giving birth. Uh, it's well documented that these women had deep issue in connecting with their newborn. They couldn't breastfeed, like the milk wouldn't be producing, and they had severe postpartum depression. Um, I'm pretty sure that actually like the diagnosis of postpartum depression comes from this era because of the millions of women who went into the hospital to then be put under to then give birth to their babies. And the Queen of England, uh, the late Queen Elizabeth, was actually heralded for her twilight births to her children. And it was popularized actually through her involvement in this process that made it kind of like a popular thing to do. It's like, well, if the Queen of England is doing it, I should do it, okay? They don't do this anymore because of the ramifications that this innovation had on um, women and families. And um, you know now you can get an epidural and there are other pain um, medicines that you can take to have a pain-free birth. But it's interesting how it's just kind of like shoved under the rug. Okay, we're not gonna talk about how we, anesthetized millions of women as they were going through the physiological birth process and they had zero involvement in that process. We can't talk about innovations without talking about hormonal birth control. So hurrah, innovation, we are free from the fear of pregnancy, okay? Like we don't have to have baby after baby after baby, um, you know, because Jeezo, Pizo, we were just a womb and a vessel for, you know, our husbands to inseminate us with. So let's like have this birth control. But at what cost? Okay, it's only coming out just now what hormonal birth control has been doing and wreaking havoc on female physiology for the last 50 years. This was like a great experiment on female hormones. And what were the real underlying motives of hormonal birth control? Margaret Sanger, the like, touted mother of hormonal birth control, the woman who really pushed hormonal, the development of hormonal birth control, it's coming out now that she was a eugenicist, that she really actually wanted there to be less, in her words, this is a quote from her, less Slavics, Jews, Blacks, and anyone who wasn't worthy of having children. Okay, so here's a quote from her, more children from the fit, less from the unfit. That is the chief aim of birth control. So not only is the history of hormonal birth control founded upon eugenics, which when I found that out, I had would just come off of uh, 10 years of being on hormonal birth control. I was like gobstruck. I was like, are you serious? Like that is an underlying motivation for the development of hormonal birth control. Um, and then nowadays, all of the um, 
side effects of long-term hormonal birth control from like infertility to like cysts to like just other health issues from the hormonal disruption. I mean, I have friends, I have a feeling in like 50 years, we're going to look back and be like, what the heck was that? Like, it's kind of how, like the same way we feel about like, um, I don't know, like strapping women down or twilight birth you know, I feel like we're going to feel the same way about hormonal birth control. And I'm not saying this, if you are on hormonal birth control, this is not to shame you or make you feel bad at all. Um, I was on it for 10 years, but learning the history of it, and then also researching and looking into this long-term side effects, um, it just begs to question, was this really for the benefit of women's health? Margaret Sanger, man, she has images of her with the Ku Klux Klan. She has some like horrible quotes um, regarding the African-American community. I mean, it's really nasty. Ay, <laughs> caramba. Okay. This innovation, I, um, I kind of have no words, but I'm going to speak it. So 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, one of the popular forms, no, I'm sorry, it was more like 1970s to 1990s. Um, one of the popular forms of hysterectomy was through morselation. Now, prior to this, they would cut a woman's abdomen open and pull out the uterus that way or do an intervaginal, like go through the vaginal canal and cut out the uterus that way for a hysterectomy. But I don't know whose name, I don't, I, I can't go into this too much because it just makes me nauseous. Um, I don't know the man's name who developed it, but they decided that the most, um, oh, easy way of doing a hysterectomy besides like cutting a woman open would be like, well, let's just do it laparoscopically and let's just grind up the uterus and then we'll suck it out. Okay. But what came up friends was, you know, they would do this on women with cervical or uterine cancer and they would go in and like grind up the uterus and it would just spread cancer cells all around their body. And I'm pretty sure there's actually lawsuits of women who, families of women who died post-morselation, who then had uh, systemic cancer when before it was just centered in their uterus. But uh, uh, just even the word morselation, I, I remember when I first learned about this, it was a, a teacher of mine who brought it forward and she was aghast about it because she actually had a client who, um, whose mother had this done and she ended up dying from systemic cancer post morselation. And she's like, Danelle, like they would grind up the uterus in the body. And just, uh, I'll just leave it at that. 
The next innovation that I want to name is the educational pelvic exams that are unconsented. And this is even modern day, friends. And there have been like head of departments of gyne obstetrics gynecology who have been quoted to say, but like, oh, it's good for society or it's no big deal. And that patients come to these teaching hospitals to allow their bodies to be used for educational purposes. So at these teaching hospitals like the Mayo Clinic or John Hopkins and teaching hospitals all around the world, women would go in for surgeries for whatever, whatever type of surgery, you know, arm surgery, leg surgery, I don't know, gallbladder surgery. And they would wake up from anesthesia and they would feel sore. They would feel sore in their pelvis. And what was coming out is that while in surgery, they would have a team of students come in and practice the pelvic exam. Like some women would even say they came out of surgery and it was bruised over their womb from how many people would practice inserting their fingers and pushing down on the womb to feel the cervix, to also feel the ovaries. Cause you know, when you have a pelvic exam, they can like enter into you and like push down to see if they can feel any cysts or nodules or whatnot. And it is documented that this is like common practice. And so there has been a recent call out around this practice that actually this needs to be cons like consent matters because yes, they're in a teaching hospital, but the female, like our female body isn't just open for business for someone to penetrate us because we just happen to be getting surgery at this hospital. But this is, this is the, the framework that this system sees our body as. It's just like, oh, like we're just a tool. Like it doesn't matter. We don't have feelings associated to this. Like the womb's a problem anyway, right? So let us just touch it and feel it, even if you don't want to, in these anesthetized pelvic exams. So I actually just recently had surgery on my arm and I thought about this. I was just like, okay, luckily I'm not, a, I'm at like a Kaiser hospital. So I don't think they're going to be like teaching anything, but like, I thought about that before I was put under like, oh my gosh, like what if, what if while I am put under in the surgical operation room, like I am penetrated like this has happened to thousands of women unbeknownst to them. And it's just, it's shocking to say the least. So, you know, in the last 30 years, honestly, the landscape has greatly changed. And actually now upwards of 80% of gynecologists are women. And which is amazing that, you know, like, women have come back into the fold as being kind of in charge of female pelvic health care, but the foundations are exactly the same. And I've had so many clients be like, actually, like my male gynecologist was like kinder than my female gynecologist. And like, it's, it's like the, the underlying current of everything that I've shared 
that began hundreds of years ago, it's still flowing, it's still going, it's still happening. And even though there's now women in these roles, it doesn't change the fact that everything that they are resting their knowledge and practice upon comes from this long history of horror. So where do we go from here, friends? Where, like, how can we move forward? Okay. <laughs> like, how can we move forward from this? Because this is a dense, dark history, clearly. <clears throat> well, it's simple to say, but not simple to do, that we must reclaim our pelvic well-being for ourselves. We must. It is a must, in my estimation, through education, Learn about yourself, learn about your reproductive anatomy, learn about your body, learn, have awareness about your body, be present and embodied when you go into these exams, like, and take action, take action on behalf of yourself. I still go into Western gynecological offices. I still have pap smears, but you bet your bottom dollar that I am highly educated and I am exquisitely aware of what is happening and I am in full control of that situation. That that person on the other side of the stirrups, they are not in control. I have the reins here. So we must reclaim that for ourselves. We must practice it, put it into your mind, integrate it into your body, I am in charge. I am in charge, even though for the last 600 plus years, we have been told elsewise. <clears throat> so some books that I recommend checking out. Um, these two are more historically based, Medical Bondage by Dr. Deidre Cooper Owens. She's an incredible black historian who wrote a very powerful book on race, gender, and the origins of American gynecology. It is very heavy. She goes into exquisite detail about James Marion Sims. And there's so much, but I pray to God and I am discerning about life. And I'm like, what, like, is this true? Is this real? Do I continue? And I am always like asked to continue forward. Like this must continue forward, must. So like, I just wanna share with you the mission of cervical wellness, which is to make wisdom and knowledge regarding the cervix and pelvic well-being accessible to all women through online content and courses, literary publications, and coming in the future practitioner training programs, like other health coaches or other um, women's health practitioners, midwives or doulas or whomever you are, I want to learn more about this approach to the cervix that I take. And my vision is that all women, all women around the world know how to take care of and fall in love with their cervix and their beautiful female body. That is my vision. So we live in a unique moment in time where through the internet, we have access to more holistic, integrative, indigenous and women-centered knowledge and wisdom than ever before. Like this is a gift. 
like say what you want about social media, say what you want about the internet. Like I have my things with it, but it is an incredible gift. I have received like one of like the most jaw dropping moments of my cervical wellness career was I received a DM through Instagram from a woman who told me that she was living in a self-described slum of India and she had been diagnosed with HPV, but she couldn't tell anyone in her family or her life because she wasn't married and she would have been killed if so, if they had found out that she had had sex before getting married to a husband. And she reached out to me. She's like, I don't know who to turn to. Can you please help me? And I, in that moment was like, this is the power of the internet. This person found me found my Instagram, sent me a message, and we live in completely different parts of the world, completely different cultures, completely different everything. And I was still able to offer her support in some way. So if you are a women's health practitioner or supporter in some way, like, or all of you, like drop your website or Instagram handle in the comments, as well as your specialty. And like, let's create a web of healing. Like let's keep circulating this knowledge because this is how we're going to change the current. The undercurrent is strong right now, but through each of our volitions, we are kind of like creating a new, like an eddy to create a new current. <laughs> like that's where I. So in conclusion, friends, like we can't change what happened. <clears throat> we can only change how we move forward with our body and with our life. And we can only make the conscious choice to pick back up the reins and step out of the current of how things have been done. We can do this. I truly believe that we can do it. Like I, not only have I received stories of women who've healed their cervix, but I, I'm privy to so many women's stories of healing uterine fibroids, PCOS, like cysts, like, like managing endometriosis, like healing cancers of their pelvis, infertility of like healing themselves of a traumatic birth experience and like free birthing. I mean, the list just goes on and on the power of what we can do and who we are and what our body can truly do with our like with our own autonomy. It is amazing. It's truly amazing. And I, I believe in us. I believe in our ability of this like new generation of women to question what has been happening and what it's been done to then write a new way. And it is my hope, so this is the end of the PowerPoint. <laughs> it is my hope that this webinar offers you a chance to really understand why you might be feeling the way you were feeling and understand why things 
are the way they are and have been. That it's not you. It's not even the doctor. It's this deep foundation that all of these practices are lying upon, resting upon. And through your choices and through your actions and through your like sovereignty in your body, we can write a new story and we can write a new way. And I'm seeing it done right now. I'm seeing the revolution unfold. There's so many incredible women's health practitioners that are not within the allopathic medical field that are doing incredible work and we must keep going. It must continue to grow. We must continue to move forward and we must continue to support each other. This is not a competition. This is collaboration and a collective relearning of how to take care of ourselves. Thank you so much for joining us today, friends. If you want more cervical wellness information and content, check out my website, cervicalwellness.com, or give us a follow over on Instagram at cervicalwellness. Please share this episode if it felt right and true for you. And until next time, friends, remember, we've got this.